0: listening to a special episode of the AEBC podcast. Today, Brother Jim Eliff will teach us about prayer. For more information about Antioch East Baptist Church, visit our website at antiocheast.com. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, and let's go to Matthew chapter 7. The text we're going to look at in just a moment is found in verse 7 through verse 11 of chapter seven, okay? Verse seven, you can just glance at that. But let me ask you to look at what's beyond it. In my view, what Jesus says in seven through 11 is the last thing in the body of this great sermon. And then after that, he gives us three summary statements about the Sermon on the Mount. I wanna mention them because I think they pertain and help us understand the import of the passage we're gonna dig into. In verse 12, he gives us that great golden rule, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. This is a summary statement, in a way, about all the relational aspects of the entire sermon that has been given. It's a summary statement about this great sermon. In verse 13 and 14, he gives us a second statement about the broad and the narrow way. Contrary to what a lot of people think, the broad way is not the secular way. The broad way was the religious way that was in vogue at that time, the pharisaical way. That was the broad way. It was the external uh, religionist way, and it is contrasted in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus' way, okay? Okay? So that's a, that's a summary. Which way are you going? Are you on the narrow way that Jesus is proposing here or are you on the religionist way, the moralist way? And then a third thing is found in verses 15 through 23 when Jesus warns these people not to follow false prophets. And he tells about these people who are known by their fruits. They... Cast out demons, they prophesy, they perform many miracles, but they have to depart eventually from Jesus because he never knew them. Don't follow those people, he says. And finally, really, four things. The fourth thing is this. Jesus tells us about who to listen to. And what does he say there in verse 24 and following? You know this teaching, don't you? If anyone hears these words of mine and acts on them, he may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, The winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That, of course, is a story, uh, is a, a little picture that Jesus is putting in the minds of these people to end his great sermon, to say, my words need to be listened to and obeyed. The benefit is that if you follow my way, you go my way when the great judgment comes, You will stand. That's what he's describing with the rains and the flood and the wind. The great judgment will not shake you. You will stand because you're built upon Jesus Christ in obedience to him and confidence in him, trust in him. So when we talk about prayer in just a minute, in those verses which I'll just now read, verses 7 through 11, when we talk about prayer We're talking about something that Jesus ends his great sermon with and intends for us to listen to and to obey. He wants us to obey this. It's for our own good that we do it, but it is his way. It's the Lord's way. It's the way you plant your feet on the solid rock, isn't it? To live by Jesus' words concerning prayer. Lots of advice in this Sermon on the Mount, But Jesus ends with this great idea. We live a life of confidence in God in prayer. We communicate with a personal God who loves us. And if we do the thing that we need to do in this way, we will, at least in part and in major part, actually, I say, be planting our feet solidly on Jesus Christ. And the winds can come and the floods come, but we will stand. Amen? All right, let's read verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? What a great and encouraging passage of Scripture, right? I had my first experience, really, at a remarkable answer to prayer, I guess is a good way to say it. In Washington, Arkansas. I was pastoring the Little Baptist Church, my first, very first church. I was driving over from Washington, pastoring that church, doing the best that I could. Somewhere along the line, I received a book, just a little book, no bigger than some of these little ones that I have, a little book called um, The Power of Positive Pray. Now, I have to tell you, I don't necessarily recommend the book. It's not really a great book, but it said something in it that really struck me. He repeated, the author, I think that was John Bassanio, if you remember. He wrote about believing beforehand, you know, asking God and believing that you have it already as a way to think about faith in the arena of prayer. Well, as he developed that, he told some stories about that and encouraged that, it just really reached my heart. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a person who could pray and God would have a disposition really to answer my prayer and do great things to honor him. So it was a really genuine desire. And the first thing that came to my mind was my two deacons. They were great guys, really wonderful guys. But back then, both of these men, Were smokers. These two men who were really fine men in many ways. I really had a lot of respect for them. Just lovely, kind men. But these two men smoked and they had the habit for many, many years. They were a bit older, and it just was ingrained in them, you know, they probably would like to get rid of, but they could they couldn't. And somehow, sitting over there in my room in Washtaw Baptist University or Baptist College back then, I think. I I actually just prayed and I said, Lord, please take that away from them. And I just had the faith, in my immature way, I had the faith to actually believe that God would actually do that thing which I was asking Him. With the encouragement of that book and the quoting of that scripture and thinking about all that, and you know, I went to uh, I went to speak in the church that weekend. I did not speak about that subject and I did not say anything to these men about their smoking. So I taught whatever I taught in the the morning and nothing happened. These two deacons, as far as I knew, everything was just normal. That evening I spoke again and different subject, wasn't about that, didn't say anything to them about that at all. So after the church meeting, we were standing out front under the big oak tree and I was talking to Jamie while we were talking, um, Carl, the other deacon, got in his truck, and he drove away, and Jamie and I were just just talking there. Finally, when everybody kind of moved away, and we were pretty much alone. He said, Jim, I just want to tell you that this week, I have gotten very convicted about my smoking, and God giving me the help, I've decided I'm going to quit smoking, by God's grace. I said, "What, well, Jamie, that You just don't know how good that is to hear that, you know. And we talked about what God had done and and how beautiful it was. And so he just quit cold turkey. He quit his long-term habit. But Carl had gone away, and I just assumed, of course, there was nothing going on there. But would you believe it? In the middle of the week, I got a telephone call, and Carl had also given up. He talked to Jamie and decided he was going to give up his cigarettes, too. Now, how do you explain that? Except as a genuine, as a real answer to prayer. God answered that prayer. That was my first experience of something really remarkable. Now, lots of praying is not as specific as that. Some things we pray about, right, and God just sort of slowly is giving out his blessing maybe in a certain area. You understand that. There are different kinds of prayers, but that was a specific prayer and a specific answer to prayer that really encouraged me in a powerful way. Isn't God good? So we've seen our lives, my wife and I, over these years, especially in relationship to this fact that we set ourselves up to fail if God didn't come through in terms of finances. (laughs) In other words, we were not going to ask anybody but the Lord, so God meeting our needs was so critical. So we were learning and seeing punctuations of God's answers to specific prayers Uh, from time to time through our life and our ministry together. One time I was overseas in Romania, and this was way back during the communist days, and the walls were still up, and we were in the country trying to minister, and my mother got very sick. She She had Alzheimer's, and she apparently had a stroke along with it, and they finally got through to me and were able to talk to me. I just felt that God wanted me to try to get back home as soon as I could and see my mother, before she passed away if at all possible. So it was very hard to get out of the country in those days. You had to give them a schedule. They followed you, they went through your bags. You had to schedule out your days and, and you couldn't change it. So it was really difficult. It took us a couple of days actually to, to work it out. And They had to have American money to get out. They couldn't, wouldn't take their own money. But we were finally able to get out of the country. And my wife and I took a train then to Vienna Uh, In Vienna, our plan was to spend the night in the train station and then early in the morning uh, get a train over to the airport, which was way out of town. But you know what? We couldn't spend the night in the train station because they closed the thing. And so here we were out in Vienna in a kind of a seedy part of town. I had been there before. I knew the area I knew of a little pension some half a mile away, but I wasn't about to take my bride down these streets. It was really kind of a dangerous place. And look, there were no taxis. There was nobody. There were few people sleeping in front of the train station, and I didn't know what to do. I, was, I didn't have any idea how I could get to the airport at 5 o'clock, leaving at 5 o'clock in the morning. Didn't know the language, just didn't know what to do. We went to, there was a little bank of telephones, and then it led to a couple of telephone booths as well. And so my wife and I went inside of a telephone booth, and we just cried out to God, God, you've got to help us. We don't know what to do. We're just like kids here. We don't have any idea about what to do to get over to that airport to get home and see my mother. So when we got through praying uh, to the Lord, we Uh, got out of the telephone booth, and we began to walk by that bank of telephones. And there was one man there, and he was talking in Spanish, and he was talking, he kept mentioning the word Chile, which is Chile. And I had been to Chile not long before that, and so I said, Pam, let's just wait just a minute. I'd like to meet this guy. You know, maybe we can, really, I was thinking maybe we'd have an opportunity to talk about the gospel with him. And so we waited, and he got off the phone, and we introduced ourselves, and we had... We just began to talk about Chile and so forth. And he said, now, what are, you, what are you doing here? And we said, well, we're here because we want to get home. We're uh, to the States, and here's what happened, and we're just, we don't really know, know what to do, but uh, we don't have any way to figure out how to get any place. He said, you don't? Well, I'll take you to the airport, he said. Well, we thought, man, that is just amazing, like an angel, you know. So we got in the car with this guy, and we went across town, and uh, you know what? He listened to the gospel the whole way. And when we got to the airport, which was miles away. Again, we're traveling about an hour. I mean, it was a long way across a big city. And when we got to the airport, he wanted to get out and talk more about Jesus. How often does that happen? Huh? He wanted to talk more about Jesus, and we did that. And look what God did. He answered our desperate prayer, right? Now let's look at this passage and see what Jesus is saying to encourage us, okay? Some people see in verses seven and eight something of an increase or an augmenting of intensity. For instance, they say asking God is one thing, seeking is a more intense thing, and knocking is an even more intense thing. Other people see an increasing intensity in a possibility of the way you speak those words. For instance, you can say ask and seek and knock, or you can say keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. So you hear the intensity and persistence in that idea. It's a perfectly valid way to interpret those verbs right there, all right? So here's the statement I want to make that I believe we need to remember about prayer as Jesus gives it. Here it is. Persistent prayer is answered. That's what he says, right? Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. He knocks, it will be open to him. Persistent prayer is answered not because we are persistent, but because God is good. All right? Because God is good. You know what's the reason you don't pray? Why don't you pray? Why don't I pray? I mean, we could think, I was once with a group of men, I asked that question, why don't you pray? And you know what? They made an entire whiteboard just filled with excuses that are made that they have made themselves. I looked at them, I thought, I've probably made almost every one of these excuses about praying. We've got lots of reasons not to pray, right? We think that keep us from praying. But one of the reasons we need to think about is the reason Jesus is bringing forward in this great passage. One of the reasons we don't pray is because we underestimate and undervalue the goodness of God. God is good. Now, Jesus has already made clear in the Sermon on the Mount that persistence persistently asking the Lord is not the means by which you will get God to answer. He said the pagans are like that and don't you be like that. They think that by their many words they will get God to answer. But in fact he says that's not so. Pray like this and he gives a very simple prayer, doesn't he? As a model prayer. It's not the persistence that we have that causes God to answer the prayer. Persistence Is what is natural if something is deeply burdening to you. It's the natural thing you do when something means a lot to you. Am I right? You've been there, haven't you? Where you just you can't help in a way, but to be persistent in your prayer because it's so important. It's your son, it's your grandkids, or It's some kind of situation that you find yourself in where you don't have an answer and you're deeply burdened about it. Persistence shows or demonstrates that we have a deep burden and it causes us to cry out to God and persist in our prayer because we just can't help it. But the reason he answers is not because you're persistent. The reason he answers is because he is good. He is good. And this is the disposition of the Lord He loves his children, and he loves to give you what is good. He loves to do that. He's not like the pagan gods. The pagan gods don't have a disposition to make you happy. They are reluctant, aren't they? Not so with God, our Father. You, as a father or a mother, you long to give good things to your children because you really do have a heart to do that. How much more is the Father like that, right? He loves you. He wants to do that. So you're not overcoming his reluctance. He is good. You need to meditate upon and not undervalue that great goodness of God. He loves to answer the prayers of desperate people and the brokenhearted people when we cry out to him because he's a good God. He's a good God. I think that we are so short-sighted about God that our biggest problem likely in our lives is thinking that God is too small, right? And that he is not loving like he really is. Now, second thing I want to say is this. This comes from verses 9 and 10. Or, What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone. That kind of looks alike, doesn't it? A loaf and a stone, perhaps. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? So here's the point, I think, that Jesus is making in these two verses. And we can put it in a statement. God will not give us what mocks us or harms us, but only what is good. If you're asking for bread, he's not going to give you a stone. If you're asking for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. He doesn't give what mocks you, as in a stone for bread. Looks like it, but hey. You know, he's not not doing that. And he's not going to give you what hurts you, as in a snake for a fish. You wouldn't do that for your children. And he doesn't do that for you. He doesn't mock you, and he doesn't harm you. He wants to give you what is your ultimate good. What is good? Good for him and good for you. And what is good for him is what's good for you, right? Now we have a problem, don't we, interpreting sometimes what is good for us? Uh, Sometimes we're very disappointed at some things that happen in our lives and we don't know that it's good for us. But later we look back. I'm just thinking right now about my friend who was a quarterback for Navy on the meat squad. He was just a freshman, got drunk one night, went out driving down the highway and he lost control of the car and flipped the car and immediately he was paralyzed from his waist down. Boy, that sounds bad, doesn't it? but it's good because it was through that experience that he came to know Jesus Christ. When he bought a bar and tried to commit suicide one night and saw that little New Testament that some girl had given him some time before, and he picked it up and read it, and in two days he'd read through the New Testament, and he was converted to Jesus. So he, he, would, he would deny that was a bad thing. A lot of things that look bad on the surface are really good, real good sometimes. Maybe you know the man John Piper. He shared one time about how when he was a young person, he really wanted to have some relationships with girls and get to know some girls like any young man would in a wholesome way. He just, you know, he wanted a wife and he wanted to know the girls, but when he was in high school, he had a terrible case of acne on his face. And try as he would, he could not get that acne off of his face. And it was just a really uh, problem for him. And he just knew no girl would want to have any dates with him. So that which looked so bad, which he longed and even prayed that God would take away, God really didn't take it away. It just persisted. But it was good. Because he had acne... He didn't have time. He couldn't waste his time thinking about girls. But he decided the Bible is where he wanted to put his focus, and he focused on that Bible and became the biblical scholar that he is today. He says, it was a good thing that God didn't give me what I thought he ought to give me. Now, this is a promise to us, and it's a real reassurance to me because I ask for stupid things sometimes. Sometimes. I'm glad that God only gives me what is good. That's actually a great reassurance to me. I'm a human and I'm subject to error in the things that I might ask. Sometimes I'm praying along and I I begin to refine my prayer as I go along as God's kind of working in me and things get a little bit more on the right track. But I have a confidence that whatever I ask for, He's going to give me. He's not going to mock me. He doesn't... He's happy that I'm asking him. He invites me to ask him for answers to my needs, right? He invites me to do that. He's not going to mock me, and he's not going to hurt me. So I know he's going to give me really what is good. That's an assurance that I love to think about. Let me give you a third statement. He says this in verse 11. If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? And the statement I want to make is this. He is more inclined to give us what is good than we are. And that's just the way you are with your kids, right? You have great desires to be a blessing to the people you love. And God is the father of all that. He's the one who is the originator of that kind of thought and that kind of love, isn't he? He really desires it more than we could even desire it for ourselves. He wants to have us to have what is good. It's an interesting thing to think about that the Lord has already given you the best. So... Why would we doubt that he wants to give us lesser things than that best? Think about that. That's really true. He's given you the very best already. And then just look at your body. Just think about little old you, okay? The Bible says that you are going to inherit the kingdom. We're not really talking about somebody else. We're talking about you. Just look at you. I mean, just that's you. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Don't you know you'll judge the world? Don't you know that you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ? Everything that comes to Jesus, you're a sharer in that for eternity. The inheritance is literally everything there is. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's you. Are you amazed by that? You ought to be amazed by that. Yeah. We ought to be absolutely amazed by that. He's really talking about you. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So look, if He's promised to give you all of that, do you think He's not going to give you the the little things that you need (laughs) in this earth that you need to honor Him, and to do His will? He's going to give you those things. Don't you know Jesus told His disciples the Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And that was to be a motivation to them to ask the Father and expect him to be one who cares and will give all that you really need. And that's really true. And it's so unfathomable almost for us. We cannot really wrap our minds around how much God has already given us in Jesus and has promised us in the future. So for us to go through this interim period of time and question whether God will answer our prayers is really ludicrous, isn't it? Now, I do it too. I forget. I don't think about it. I don't meditate and know. And, you know, I undervalue the Lord and what He has given to me and has promised me. But if I'm thinking straight and I'm sane and I'm logical and I'm clear-headed about what the Bible says... I shouldn't ever question that the Lord wants to answer my prayers. He does. He wants to answer your prayers. There's really only one thing to do here in this passage. It's really only one command in three words. Ask, seek, and knock. If we're going to put this passage, these great, phenomenal truths into to working, we're going to have to do the thing that he says to do right? We need to ask. We need to ask. James said, you don't have because you don't ask. So we are to ask and to seek and to knock. And his promise, his phenomenal promise is for you, the one he's giving the kingdom to. Think about your life. You've got a little bit more living to do, don't you? Some of you got some nice white hair. I love it. You may not be as physically strong as you used to be. Is that true for some of you? You may have some sicknesses, illnesses, maybe crippled up a little bit. You may have a sour wife or a sour husband. <laughs> but if you've got prayer, you've got some things you can do. You can do that when you can't move, <laughs> right? Right? You can pray. Think about the awesomeness of this. The awesomeness of being able to pray. There's nothing to stop you. The promises are not limiting you. Your illness is not limiting you. Your education is not limiting you. There's nothing limiting you from being a great prayer. You could be the finest prayer this world has ever known for the glory of God nothing to stop you that I know about, nothing at all, except your willingness or my willingness to be what God says we can be. So I'm I'm asking you to take this as a challenge, okay? Do something about this. Wouldn't it be something if arising out of this congregation were some amazing prayers, intercessors, people let you would think, you know, I don't know if I want to do anything without talking to Miss so-and-so or Mr. (laughs) So-and-so, you know, because that person's going to pray and God's going to hear that person's prayer. I want to die with a lot of stories to tell about God answering prayer for his glory. And that can be you. And I believe it probably is some of you. So let's just let's just settle it right now that we're not gonna be apathetic about life and complaining about not having any purpose and nobody thinking we're cool anymore and we're not to head this or head that anymore. You've got the best job you could possibly have and that's to be a prayer.